Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Peter, chapter 1. We'll be continuing in our study of 1 Peter. Uh, Today we'll be primarily looking at verses 13 through 16. But to give us the context, we're going to read verses 3 through 25. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through your the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, to the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to get a do-over in life? Start from the beginning. What would you do differently? How would you fix the mistakes you made? Uh, I'd eat better, go organic, avoid chemicals, not have Parkinson's today, right? You know, things like that. But what about the rest of our life, the mistakes that we've made, the sorrows we've suffered? If we had a do-over, we'd probably want to live a very different life. Well, I don't know when all of you were saved, but I started at 27 as a Christian. And at that point, it really is a do-over. You start over. Now I've died to sin and I'm alive to Christ. What is my new life going to look like? That's kind of what he talks about in this passage where he's telling us, you know, given that we've received this awesome grace from God, he's caused us to be born again. He's given us a living hope of salvation, of eternal life, of glory within. Given all of that, that we are saved by the blood of his son. Given that even the prophets and the angels long to look into the salvation we've been given, that we've been shown. How then should we really live? And that's where he starts in this passage with the word, therefore. Before we start looking, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would open our hearts to receive the things of your word. Give us wisdom to understand them, joy in knowing them, and diligence in pursuing what is commanded. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So given that we've received such an awesome grace from God, We need to set our hope on that grace and its outcome, its promises. So he says, first, therefore, preparing your minds for action, or literally it says, and on account of this, the salvation, the glory, the grace, on account of this, gird up the loins of your mind. Now they've interpreted gird up the loins of your mind, but I really don't like when they do that because there are often allusions in what they say in the New Testament to the Old Testament law and to the Old Testament life. You know, if you think about it, what does it mean to gird up the loins? I mean, when I first became a Christian, I was reading my King James Bible. I would read a page or two and go, I don't know what this means. <laughs> Sometimes I really struggle. Uh, a good commentary Bible will, will have comments on the bottom explaining the idioms and the ideas. If you think about the Middle East, though, people wear a robe. And it's a long robe. And you have to wonder, why do they wear that when it's 125 degrees outside? Well, the answer to that is simple. Anybody ever slept in a sleeping bag when it's really cold? You know, what's the idea of the sleeping bag? Do you wear warm clothes under it? No, because if you wear just you know, shorts and a t-shirt in your sleeping bag, you heat up the air inside the sleeping bag. When I was in the army, I learned very quickly, you stuff the clothes you can wear the next day down in the sleeping bag, because it might be frost on your face, but your clothes will be warm. <laughs> well, it's the same idea over there. They wear those long robes, because the outside air is 125 degrees, and as you perspire and it evaporates, it's cooler inside the robe. And what you're doing is you're maintaining a separate volume of air close to your skin. And that's how they can live without dying of heat stroke when it's 125 every day in the hot season. 
Now, I've never worn the robe or lungy. For those of you who have seen Pastor Len talk about his trips to Miramar, he wears a lungy when he does that. Uh, but I've seen these things, and you can always ask one of the ladies about wearing a long skirt. Is it easy to work on the farm in a long skirt? Is it easy to work in the woods? You think it's easy to fight in battle? All right, what happens? Well, it clings to your skin as you're sweating. It tangles you, it trips you, it wears you out trying to move it around so you can get going. Right? It's a nuisance and a problem. It, it interferes with everything you intend to do. It restricts your movement, it gets caught on things to trip you. It, it's a hazard. You can't run, you can't, can't fight, you can't climb. Not as well as you could with pants. But they had a trick. You know, all those things would sap your energy, but they had a way of dealing with it, girding up the loins. Now, many of the commentators mentioned that girding means putting the belt around the middle. You don't generally wear the belt because you want the air, you know, the cooler air to be able to flow a little bit and the hot air to get out. And as you sweat, you don't want too much water to stay in. But you put on the belt. And then I learned this in Cambodia in, in actual practice. The wedding dress for men in Cambodia is I don't know, a four meter long section of cloth, one meter by four meters. And they wrap it around your waist and attach it. And then for men, you reach down and you grab the part behind, you pull it through your legs, up over your loins, tuck it into your belt, and you have shorts. Uh, it was hard to walk in when it's you know that many layers of thick, stiff, ornamental cloth. But if you think about the robes they were wearing over there, that was how you made shorts. And now you've got shorts so you can run. You're not going to get caught on anything. You're not going to get tangled in anything. You can move better. And that is girding up the loins. Now, why do I spend so much time talking about this? He's taking an idea from daily life that they understood and applying it to something they might not quite realize. The idea being, our brain, our life, is like that. In, in, in such that there are many things in our life that tangle us, that trip us, that trap us, that prevent us from moving freely in the direction we should go, that stumble us and prevent us from accomplishing anything, that wear us out. Right? If you're fighting with your clothes, it's a nuisance. And you get tired. Well, what are these things then that he's talking about that war against our mind, our spirit, our soul? What things entangle us? The Bible talks about it a lot. In Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What clings to us like a wet robe, a sweaty robe? Our sin. What entangles us, what weighs us down? Our sins. Uh, the idea he's giving us is to cast off those things so that we're not hindered in our performance of the Christian life. So that we're not stumbled in living for God. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the four soils. You remember in Luke eight fourteen, he says, the seed that fell among the thorns, that is those who hear, 
They go on their way and they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And the fruit does not mature. You know, the cares of life, the worry about job, the worry about future, the worry about what to wear, what to have, how to get along. You know, all of those things that we worry about, as well as, you know, the, the riches of the world and desire for them and the pleasures of life. When those become our focus, what happens? You know, we are choked by them and unable. You can't have that in Christ. Right? You can't pursue pleasure and wealth and acceptance with the world and pursue Christ at the same time. And so, as it says here, they, they entangle him like thorns. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 that the, you know, that desire to be rich and those who have it fall into temptation, into a snare. The many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all different kinds of evils. It is through his, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so the love of wealth in particular is called a snare. And of course, you know, think about it, if you're wearing a robe... You may not be able to see the snare, but if it's girded up and it looks more like shorts, you can see your feet, you know where you're stepping, and you can help avoid that. And that's really his idea here. He's bringing out something they would understand clearly. John in 1 John puts it rather bluntly in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 passage we all know well do not love the world or the things of the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh desires of the eyes and pride of life it's not from the father but from the world and the world is passing away but whoever does the will of god abides forever so in other words the 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 desires of the flesh the things we want for to make ourselves comfortable they're an entanglement to us. And they're passing away. The desire of the eyes, the things that are pink. I want new, I want shiny, I want bling, I want pretty, I want this, I want that. That all hinders us. And the pride of life. I want to be accepted, I want to be respected, I want to be obeyed. These things also that come from our pride stumble us. and They're the things of the world, the things that we should not be loving. But what do we have in this passage? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And that's what he's talking about here. We need to disentangle ourselves from all of these things that trip us, that hinder us, that slow us, that wear us out, that cause us to fail. Disentangle us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And be, as he says, sober minded. Now what does sober minded mean? Peter uses this word here and two other times. Here it says preparing your minds for action and being sober minded set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 verse 7 he says the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sober-mindedness is a key to leading a proper Christian life. It's the key to what he is talking about in this passage of living a holy life. Paul uses this word three times as well. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 to 8, he uses it twice. Let us not sleep as others do, but keep awake and be sober. Same word. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Exactly what Peter is talking about here. You know, being being sober, sober-minded is a key to having that armor on us, to, to being able to withstand, you know, a difficult life, a holy, to live a holy life in an unholy world. This is central in his thinking. He says the same thing to Paul, to Timothy later in Second Timothy uh, three, four, three through five. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then he contrasts this. But you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fill your ministry. And so being sober-minded, he's setting in opposition to that desire to hear what you want to hear and please yourself. Bad doctrine. So what does he mean by sober-minded? Not simply don't drink alcohol. He's not talking about being physically drunk, but he's using drunkenness as an example to how Christians shouldn't live their life, how the world is living its life. You know, think about a drunk person. What, what's wrong? What goes on? Well, they're foolish. They're stupid. They can be easily confused and tricked and duped. Uh, there's an old saying about, I forget what it is, but about um, you know, serving alcohol at business negotiations. Helps you get the upper hand, at least if you can hold your drink better than they can. But think about that in our life. You know, if we're drunk, we're going to be tricked, we're going to be foolish, we're going to make bad decisions. If we're spiritually not sober-minded, we're going to have the same problems. And we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, Drunk people are often totally unreasonable. They don't care what the truth is. They don't care what reality. You can read the Bible to a drunk person. They don't care. Well, you can read a person to a, the Bible to a person who's the equivalent of being spiritually drunk, and they're not going to listen. They're not going to reason. They're not going to understand. They'll be unreasonable. A drunk person has no self-control. Many many drunk people. <clears throat> give vent to their anger or their bitterness or their sorrow or they get loud. And a lot of drunks are usually classified into the weeping, the fighting, and the boisterous, the the loud and obnoxious. Uh, But that's all things that, if we're spiritually on the wrong path, are going to describe us. And drunk people are usually very careless. 
They don't pay attention to what's going on or think about the consequences or think about you know, how this is going to affect other people in any way. And they're generally pretty clueless. But you know, this is us and our sins. Think about it. If we're prideful, what happens when we're disrespected? Are we reasonable? You know, are we wise or foolish? Reasonable, unreasonable. You know, if we're prone to anger and we're angry, where are we? Are we acting like a drunk or are we acting like a sober person? You know, from a spiritual point of view, when we're wandering off in our sins, when we're living the worldly life, when we're reacting in the worldly way, we're like a drunk on a bender. I mean, we're, we're not living with Christ or we're not being sane and we're tripping everyone up including ourselves. All those things that trip us up, be it the love of money, the pride of life, the love of the things we see, they're the things that are getting us drunk. That's what he's talking about. You know, it's like you know, going off after how am I going to get this thing that I want. It's like going off and grabbing a bottle of whiskey and downing it. It's going to mess up our whole spiritual soberness our spiritual sobriety. They're the booze, right? The sins that we cling to are like the booze that we get drunk on day after day. And that's a problem for us. Now in Revelation 17, 1 through 6, we learn a little bit about this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to John and said, Come, I will show you the judgment on the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, on whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Now, obviously, talking about a city in, a, in kings, we're not talking about sexual immorality. We're talking about sexual immorality as it's related to God, as in following other gods and worshiping other things and abandoning God. All these things, the whole the dwellers on the earth have become drunk by them. They're describing the giving into sin as a drunkenness. And he carried me away into the wilderness by the Spirit, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, etc., etc., etc. The woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus in that passage. But what I wanted you to think about is, you know, in the judgment at the end, the world is described as drunk on what? But on the things that the world has to offer, all of the corruption, all of the sin, all of the vileness. And when we give ourselves into those things, we make ourselves drunk on them too. This is very serious. We are to be sober-minded, turn from being inebriated in the cares of life, the things that choke the word, that make it unfruitful, that lead us into temptations, all the foolish and hurtful desires. We're to turn from those and be sober-minded in Christ. You know, it's hard to think about the little tiny sins that we love, the desires that we have, the comforts that we pursue like this, but when they turn us away from Christ and they interfere with our walk with Christ, you know, they're like the robe dangling down over our feet that we can't see what's going on and we trip. 
they can get us. And we're being called to be sober-minded about it. Think about those things. Is it wrong to be comfortable? Is it wrong to throw out your old broken chair and get a new one? No, of course not. Uh, if that becomes your passion and that's more important to you than God or it's stopping you from following God, th- there are problems. But the things that are always wrong, things like the, you know, the anger, the bitterness, the destructive behavior, all the things that you think of a drunken person doing, you know, th- those come into our heart spiritually and we're like that to ourselves and to others. Then we know we are being, we are drunk on the things of this world and things of this life. Uh, People also are often intoxicated with errors, false doctrine. Sometimes they lull us to sleep. Always they render us incapable of following and serving Christ and his church. People who turn their head from faith to fables, they get excited, they get passionate. I shared the story before about a young man who was all about, you know, the Soviet Union is the, you know, the great enemy in the book of Revelation and the end time has come and then the Berlin Wall falls and the Soviet Union dissolves and he's lost. And he goes on and he picks up the next great thing. This great theology that nobody else is doing that, you know, he, he was drunk on foolishness really. On unbiblical ideas, unbiblical doctrines. But sometimes, you know, we get that, we get really super excited. Oh, everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to believe this. And sometimes it's even the truth. But, you know, is that really helpful? Are we being sober-minded? Especially if it's false. You know, are we deceiving ourselves? But even when we start in truth, when we get you know, too overexcited, too demanding, too forceful, too arrogant, too loud, too angry, too bitter... It's become a stumbling block, even the truth, depending on the heart and how we handle it and how we are living it. And that's what he's trying to drive at here. Be sober-minded about it. Yes, there are great truths. And yes, if you know, a teacher denies them, we're not going to allow them to teach. And yes, if somebody denies them and is against them, we might try to educate them and inform them. But preach the truth in love is what God says. And that is what we need to do. Be sober-minded about it. Sober-minded is not just, you know, moderation and drinking alcohol and eating food, but it's really being disengaged from all the anxious cares of the world, disentangled from the worldliness, you know, removing ourselves from the, the temptations and the sinful desires and the things that interfere. You know, if you were going to go to work and do a delicate task, you wouldn't have a beer. Actually, in college, I knew people who would go smoke a joint before an exam, but it's like, what are you thinking? You know, as Christians, we certainly don't want to be like that. I, you know, I've got this problem to solve. And instead of being sober-minded, we allow ourselves to be anxious or bitter or angry or resentful. You know, we talked about that when we talked about holiness. Oh, God doesn't want to help me or God hates me because he's not doing what I want. You know, that's not being sober-minded. God wants what's best for us. And yes, he chastises us for our sins. But he's promised that all things will work together for good. We should have confidence in that. 
Faith in that. That's what we're talking about in this passage. Faith in Jesus' resurrection. We haven't seen him. We don't see him now. But we are confident that God has raised him from the dead. And that is our hope. And inexpressible joy comes from that hope that we also will be raised like him. Because he has given us that salvation. And so that hope, that faith, is central to what he's talking about here, that what Peter is talking about in being sober-minded. We don't allow ourselves to become overly emotional and overly excited about things, that, but we put our hope and our confidence and our trust in God and we go to him in prayer. And we all have those times where we're overwhelmed, but the solution is not spiritual drunkenness, but on our knees in prayer. Or for those of us who can't kneel anymore on our seats in prayer. But be sober-minded. How, though, can we be sober-minded? Well, we, we talked about Revelation 17, comparing the sins of the world to adultery. Right? We've been promised to one bridegroom, Christ, and we want to be pure when we come to him. How are we pure but by turning away from our sins and putting our hope fully in the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Now, what does it mean it's brought to us at the revelation? Haven't we already received our salvation? Well, yes. What is he talking about here? But the full revelation of it and the full completion of it has not happened. I mean, how many are perfectly pure and sinless? None. We haven't received the fullness of it yet. We've received the guarantee, and that guarantee is the spirit in our lives. But the completion of it, the being with God forever, the being purified of all of our sins, has not yet happened. And the fullness of it really comes at the judgment, when we are judged for our sins, the final judgment, which is still future even after our death, potentially. So that's what he means, I think, by at the revelation of Christ Jesus. But we, we know that hope. And we, we know the pointlessness of the things of the world. Uh, we've been talking about that the last few weeks in Peter. All of that stuff is fading. It's passing away. It's meaningless. Eternity with Christ is the reality. Our pilgrimage here on earth is leading to that. I gave the illustration, why does the child climb the hill in the snow with his sled? Dragging it up the sled, tired, slipping, falling, because they want to get the slide down. And why does the Christian live a sober life, sober-minded life, pleasing God and you know, struggling and suffering in this world that hates God, that's filled with sin, that's filled with um, the curse? Why? Well, because we know we have eternal life. And we are looking forward to that and doing what we need to do to get there. We know, as Hebrews says, the the pleasures of sin are just fleeting. And they separate us from Christ. In Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. That reward was the salvation Peter is talking about in our passage today. If we are fixed on that, if we are desiring that, if that is our hope, then we can deny the things of this world and count suffering for Christ greater than the joys and pleasures this world can offer us. Now God, he understands that we have needs and he's promised to fulfill those needs and take care of them. There's that great passage in Matthew 6 where Jesus 25, Matthew 6, 25 through 33, Jesus is talking about the anxieties of this life. You know, the things that shouldn't weigh us down, that shouldn't entangle us, that shouldn't trouble us. But they do. You know, what happens if I lose my job? You know, what happens if my pension goes bankrupt? What happens if, you know, my spouse dies from sickness? You know, we worry about these things. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, of not, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. Now, that is our point here. If we are being sober-minded and seeking the things of God, we can have that confidence that he will take care of the things we need. Uh, do Christians sometimes have hunger and death and sorrow and misery? Sure. But God has promised to work that out for our good. If we have confidence in him, then we need not be drunk with fear. We need not be drunk with anxiety or drunk with bitterness or drunk with anger. All of those things can be overcome by our relationship with Christ. Now, like those of faith before us, we must put our full hope on that free gift of Christ's blood to purify us. It purifies us from all sin so that we are pure and blameless on the day of judgment. Paul talks about this in Titus 2, 11 through 14. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, meaning People in the Old Testament didn't see Christ. We now see and understand how that salvation will work, how that grace to us works. The, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what has he said? Renounce all godliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, sober-minded lives. Godly lives in this present age. This age where things are not going our way in this world. And we should not expect them to. So given that we've received this awesome grace from God, this salvation from God, he goes on in verse 14 to say that we should live essentially as obedient children of God. We've received the grace of adoption and are his children and heirs. And this isn't something new. This is something God had prepared for us beforehand. In fact, if we go back to that famous passage in Ephesians 1, from the before the foundation of the world. Remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The great grace that he has given us even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's speaking of the salvation that we hope for. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself in heaven and on earth. So that adoption of sons is all mixed in with that salvation, with that election that Peter talked about earlier in the chapter about with our salvation with our inheritance the eternal life the treasure in heaven the 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 great inheritance that is imperishable and incorruptible and undefiled unfading that is in heaven that all comes through our adoption as sons we are not strangers anymore we are not slaves we are children of god and heirs, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Our adoption as sons is where we become heirs to the things of heaven. And so he's telling us, live as sons, obedient sons. Now, why does it use sons most of the time? Well, if you think about Israel, the inheritance went to the son, and the daughter received the share of the inheritance of the man she married. And so he's using sons to show that we have our own inheritance. 
He's not excluding women from the kingdom of heaven. Don't worry about that. He's saying that you're getting the full promise of an inheritance, just as we are. And what a glorious thing that is. But if we are sons, and if we have been bought with a price, the blood of Christ, to make us sons, to give us that adoption, then we should live as children of God. You know, if you adopt a child and he lives as a you know, child of his other parent, his original parents, and never accepts you as fa- father and mother, is he really your child? I mean, is he really part of your family? You know, if we are adopted by God to be sons of God, to be like Christ in that regard of having a share of his inheritance, then shouldn't we live as children of God? That's the point Peter's trying to make to us here. You know, we are a new creation in Christ. We are told not to be conformed to the old pre-child of Christ self. And that's really what the problem is. Before we were a child of God, we were children of the devil. We were living wicked lives in alienation from God, in sin. And we were called to stop doing that. Now, Peter will address this more in chapter 4. The first four verses of chapter 4, Peter says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. Now, what he means there is our our life before we die, you know, we don't live it for worldly passions, we live it for God. Uh, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So what is he saying? You know, that's past. That's your old life. That's sufficient back there. Wall it off. That's not you anymore. You are now a child of God. Live as a child of God. Paul talks of this probably more than Peter. He says in uh, Romans 6, 1 through 4, What shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we have died to sin, live in it? Our being children of God involves our death to sin and our life in Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know, that newness of life that we have as children of God, as those elect who have been saved, who have been called, who have pledged themselves to Christ, have a new life and they are to walk in it. When I do the Romans road with people, I always end at Romans 12, 1 and 2, if they want, they, you know, they're professing that they are indeed a Christian. And I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And so the idea being, if you are a Christian, if you are one of Christ's brothers, one of God's children, then do not be conformed to this world. You know, all the things that are natural for our, our old self, those are the things that trip us up. Those are the things that stumble us. Those are the things that entangle us. And that is why we must gird up our loins and prepare ourselves for action and be sober-minded in all things so that we can live that newness of life that God has given us. Ephesians 4, Paul says, Now this I testify in the Lord, verses 17 to 24, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorances in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have been callous and given themselves up to sensuality and greed and that to practice every kind of impurity. So that's what we were. That is what the world is. That is what we are trying to escape from in our sinful nature that is still left within us. He goes on to say, but that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through corrupted through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so there again, you know, we are to live as obedient children, no longer conforming, Peter says, to the things, to the passions of your former ignorance, to the things that you were before. We are not that person anymore. We should stay away from those things. That's not me. I'm now a new creation in Christ. I'm being transformed by the power of his spirit. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Colossians 3, 4 through 10, then you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Talking to the believer. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these, you too, once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, we are in that process. We call it sanctification of having been converted, given a new life, becoming children of God through adoption. You know, we are the saved we are now learning more and more through his spirit to put off those previous things and put on the things of God, no longer conforming ourselves to those corrupt things of our past life, but turning our hearts fully to living a holy life in God because of the grace that he has shown to us. We were all called by that grace and called by that grace to faith and that faith 
is a faith that is living, that is real in our lives. Now, James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James 2.14. If he is not, if he is still conformed to the old man, yet he says he has faith, is that real? Is that true faith? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, do you really love him? Jesus goes on to say, that was John 14.15, John 14.21, whoever has my commandments and keep them, he, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know, a faith that does not work, a faith that is not obedient, a faith that is not turned from those former passions and living as an obedient child. James says in James 2.17, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. You know, that is not a true faith. The true faith, the Christian who has true faith is the one who is turning from that old life to that new life, endeavoring through faith, through grace, through the power of God, to live a holy life in Christ Jesus. So since we have received that awesome grace, we're to live a life as an obedient children, and more than that, verse 15 and 16, we are to be holy as the one who gave us that grace is holy. God is perfect in his holiness, I'm seeing the time. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 says that I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, upright and just is he. The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, often sings the glories of God's holiness, his perfections, his righteousness. And all of Scripture talks about that as one of his central and most important points of who he is. He is without sin, without corruption, without decay. And, he, and because of that, there's a burden upon us. Now, when we talk about our holiness, we're not talking just about our being set apart for God's use, but our, our living that life that mirrors his holiness. Now, his is perfect, ours is imperfect. But are we living a holy life, desiring a holy life, turning away from sin to him? If we want to live with God, that is necessary. Psalm 15 says in the first five verses, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? I think this is the whole psalm, actually. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with its tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes the vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at high interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent who does all he who does all these things shall never be moved you know the one who will dwell with god is not the one who lives the unholy life now trusting that god will take care of it that person is probably not a true believer 
You know, we have to cultivate in ourselves the same hatred for sin that God has, because that is what his holiness is about. Perfect holiness abhors all evil, and God hates it. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are of purer eyes than to look upon evil. You cannot look at wrong. God will not have any sinners in heaven. Sinners in evil and corruption will never enter into the gates of the new heaven and the new earth. Psalm 1.5 says, Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There will be no wicked in heaven, no sinners, no corruption, none of that. In fact, Psalm 5.5 goes on to say, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. We know in the New Testament, Paul says, Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. Jesus has promised in Matthew 7.21 and following, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We've been called to be obedient children, to be holy. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, the great reason why he is saying these things in First Peter, if we have this hope, we have this salvation, if we have Christ, if we've received the grace of God, we should in that grace live as obedient children and be holy because God is holy. Because of God's holiness, he has a great interest in making us holy. Not just in justifying us at the final judgment, but in sanctifying us in this life. He won't be able to receive us as sinners, so we have to be justified. Not simply saying, oh, I declare you're not guilty. You know, the sin really does have to be paid for. And it's paid for in Christ on the cross. And that's important. But we must be sanctified in this life, purified of our sins and made more and more holy until the day we meet him and we are completely made perfect, purified of our sins through the blood of Christ and made able to stand in his presence. We can't live with him without that. And he's called us on this life to be striving to that, even though we can't really get there ourselves. We can only get there through the blood of Christ applied to us. But if we've received that great and glorious grace of salvation, then we should live our lives as obedient children, holy, blameless, striving day by day to unentangle ourselves from the worldly things and the sinful and corrupt things and turning ourselves wholly to God. Because that is how we live a life worthy of Christ's sacrifice for us and all that he has done for us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you did send your Son to die for us, to make us holy as you are holy. We thank you that it was through grace that you chose us, that even though we are unfit and unworthy and unable, 
that you have given us that grace, that you have called us, that you have chosen us, that you have adopted us, that you have purified us. And pray that you would teach us, Lord, day by day to turn more and more away from our sin, to disentangle us from the things of the world, to be sober-minded in our thinking, in our judgment, fixing our hope upon the glory that is to be revealed on the last days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.